This is an Enlightenment Day talk by Joel, titled Post-Enlightenment Stories, recorded August 10th, 2008, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Are we rolling here? Okay. This is uh, my 25th anniversary of my enlightenment. This is Enlightenment Day. We celebrate as close to August 13th as possible because that was the day of my awakening. But truly speaking, we're not celebrating my awakening. We're celebrating the potential in everybody to wake up because it is a human birthright. And this is really what we're celebrating this morning. And for my 25th anniversary, I thought I'd write the greatest talk of my whole teaching career, you know. And then I got sick <laughs> on Monday, and then uh, I had to go to the party yesterday, and, you know, I had to imbibe with my friends and stuff. And uh, <laughs> So anyway, I didn't write the great talk, so... <laughs> And I must warn you, between the party and the fever, I'm feeling pretty good, uh, actually. Uh, but we'll just have some questions and answers. We did pretty good this morning giving that meditation structure. We covered a lot of ground there, a lot of background. If you people are new here, this isn't a typical Sunday. I want you to know this. We're just unreasonably happy this Sunday. So... If anybody has any questions or comments or experiences you'd like to share or whatever you'd like to talk about, uh, I'm certainly open to it. Yes, Pat. I was curious as to how, what, about your enlightenment and the time you spent with Dr. Wolf, did the enlightenment come after that or before that or how influential was that, that experience with him if it was after It was actually both <laughs> because I started uh, this trip that I took making a video newsletter in, let's see, the spring of 1983. And I had just heard about Dr. Wolf, and I just finished reading this Pathways Through to Space. And somehow, somebody told me he was still alive. I had no idea. This is all written about a period in the 1930s. So I wrote to him, because I had no telephones. I should say he lived on this ranch above Lone Pine, California. Lone Pine's a tiny little, you know, one-traffic-like town on the eastern side of the Sierras. And so he had no phone up there, and there was no cell phones at the time. And I wrote a letter, and he's living with a caretaker, John, and John wrote back and said, by all means, you know, come and you can visit. We can put you up. So he was uh, the second stop on my trip. I went to visit him, and I stayed there about five days, I guess. And I did an interview with him for this video newsletter, and I hiked up to the ashrama. It's a stone building that they built up in the mountains. He and his students back in the 30s and uh, saw that and so forth. And just spent a little casual time with him. He was then 95 and he was no longer giving any kind of formal teachings. You know, but just hanging out with him was an experience. And it was very important. First of all, he was the first person that I was convinced was enlightened, that he was genuine material, you know. Uh, later, I, I lived with him for a year and a half and then totally convinced, but just in that little time. He was a person who didn't have any personal agenda, didn't want anything from anybody, and, you know, except just to give what he could. And uh, very unpretentious, you know, just very natural. And that was part of what I learned from him, because I was sort of also in the back of my mind looking for a community and looking for a tradition and a path. And a lot of these places I had already visited or known people from, you know, they were disciples of some Hindu guru. So they wore robes and sandals and things and then had special diets and, you know, whatnot. And I thought, well, you know, I was kind of confused about how important is that, you know, on a spiritual path to get that right, so to speak. Well, 
And you can see we have a photograph of him out there. He looks like a retired gunslinger from the old west, you know. <laughs> he wore these Stetson hats all the time. Very formal, you know, as I say, Victorian gentleman. When he'd go into a restaurant, he'd you know, always take off his hat for the waitresses and stuff. And, and then he had this blue suit that he'd wear and a tie, always, you know. And he, he smoked a pack and a half of Paul Malls a day. And he was, you know, almost blind. And the ash would build up on the end of a cigarette and pop down. And he had holes, tiny holes burned all through his you know, So, you know, I mean, here's this man of tremendous dignity. And yet, if you look closely, you know, you Anyway, he, uh, he didn't eat much anymore, but his diet consisted mostly of fried chicken, a little mashed potato, avocados. He loved avocado. Later, John Flynn left, and this woman, Andrea, came to take care of him when I came back later. And she'd always trying to get him to eat vegetables and greens and salad and stuff. And she'd always make him a little salad, and he'd look at it and says, Do I look like a cow? That's raising food, you know. So here was this guy, totally Western, totally American, totally who he was. And I thought, okay, great. I'm not going to worry about the incense and the sandals and shaving my hair, you know, whatever. So... That was a, a really important lesson, just that it's not about exterior stuff, it's what's going on inside. And then my awakening happened towards the end of the trip, and then I came back and I was fantasizing, cabin in the mountains, where I'd just hold up and I'd write naked through the gate. And I happened to stop by his place again, it was on the way home, and I met one of his elderly students who was visiting, and he and his wife lived down in uh, oh, a larger town, not Bakersfield, but another larger town down in California. And he said he had this cabin on the property, on the ranch where Dr. Wolf lived. And that's where he stays when he comes up. And he said he comes up about three or four times a year. And I said, well, what happens to your cabin when you're not here? And he said, well, nothing, just sits there. I said, you want to rent it? And he said, yeah. And so I ended up renting the cabin. So I stayed there for another year and a half. And, and that was the time when I think I learned so much from him. But the most important thing was I had no idea of being a teacher or teaching or even it could be taught. So all I was going to do is write my book and then sort of send it out to the universe and wash my hands of it and get a job in the local hardware store and spend the rest of my life blissed out in the mountains. And it didn't work out that way. But one of the things that I learned being with him, there is something you can teach. You can't teach directly the truth, but there are ways that you can help people. And then people started asking me to be almost like an interpreter for Dr. Wolf because I knew directly what he was talking about. And so people would come up there and we'd sit down, the three of us together, and then ask him questions and I'd give the answers and he'd be there to nod and say, yes, that's true or that's not true. Or it was hard for him to, at 96, sustain a conversation. So through that process, though, I got to um, see how he operated. I got my first lesson in being a teacher from him. So that's what I learned. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes. So why don't you carry on from there and tell us how you got goaded into teaching? <laughs> well, uh, this the original caretaker, John Flynn, left. Andrea Pucci showed up. She was Italian from New York. I'm from New York. And uh, if you haven't been around them, if you hang around here, you'll find out. They're pushy and they're loud and they talk a lot. And <laughs> after a few months of this going on and my, you know, playing interpreter for Dr. Wolf and stuff. One night, she lived up at the main house with him. But one evening, she came marching down to my cabin, knocked on the door, and she said, all right, 
Tell me what's going on with you. I know something. You can't talk like this just from reading books and stuff like that. So I couldn't tell a lie, so I started telling her about this. And then she started sending more people who came to see Dr. Wolf. And, you know, so why don't you go talk to this guy, Joel? He knows a lot of stuff. And eventually, uh, Amit Goswami and Maggie, his wife, came to visit Dr. Wolf. And we started talking. And they eventually uh, asked me officially to be their teacher. They were my first official students, although Andrea was really responsible. I hold her responsible. She's According <laughs> to Andrea, yes. her, her words to you were, you know something, don't you? Yes, it was something like that. And but you replied... Uh, yes, I don't remember exactly. Oh, you tell us. Why don't you? You replied, I know I'm not a goat. Why does it start somewhere? Actually, that comes from something Ramana Maharshi said. What? It's the goat teaching. It's passed on from generation to generation. <laughs> so now you see, I have to explain the, the teaching, right? So, <laughs> people think that enlightenment gives you some positive form of knowledge. Like, I know something that the rest of you don't know. That's not true. It's not something that you hold in your mind, like, i got to remember, i got to remember what it is now, you know, uh, multiplication tables or something. And the way Ramana Maharshi described it, he said, look, he said to his students, he said, you all know you're not a goat, right? And they all said, yes. You know you're not a goat, right? Yes, okay. <laughs> if you think you're a goat, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> the, the White Bird Clinic downtown, I would recommend that. But, but you think you're a person. This is his point. You think you're a person. Not only do you think you're a person, you're convinced you're a person. Well, he's saying just the way you know you're not a goat, and you don't have to go around all day thinking, I'm not a goat, i got to remember, I'm not a goat. You know, nah, nah. <laughs> to be enlightened, you don't have to go around remembering all day that you're not a person. It's just obvious you're not a person. It's not some knowledge you carry around. So that's where the line comes from, I'm not a goat. This gentleman. Um, you, may have, you may have just answered my question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Am I a goat? No. I'm still, I'm still not a goat. I wasn't a goat then, I'm still not. Well, actually, that was a question. Were you a goat then? <laughs> um, I feel, at times, sometimes sitting, whatever, I've never, I've never actually formalized this before. This came for the first time this morning. This is, this is more like a tacit thought. It's not, it's not like a, an overt kind of thought, but like, I almost feel as if like there's a slight resistance to moving towards the silence or moving towards stillness because everything I've built and everything I've learned and everything I have, I'm going to lose that. It's like, well, what a waste of time. Like my whole life has been, I don't want to go there, you know? And even though I think that that's not true, I still feel like this, this part of me like holds back because I feel like I'm going to lose something that I've gained. And it might be that I haven't actually really gained anything, and that's the thing I'm going to realize. But whatever. Um, <laughs> I thought you might address that kind of resistance, if you can. Uh, yes, it actually is quite common. In fact, it's almost universal. It has a name. It's called Fear of Enlightenment. In fact, better named Terror of Enlightenment, actually. They spell that. Actually, it's well known in the traditions, not just that I'm saying it, but this is my experience with my students. In fact, if you haven't experienced a little fear, you're not that far down the path. 
it's when a student starts experiencing a little fear that, oh, I start taking notice, really, because it means you're actually tapping into the truth. Because to the ego, the ego mind, the goat, it's terrifying. You don't exist. So the fact that you feel a little of this and this little resistance is actually, from a teacher's point of view, a very good thing. So you shouldn't feel bad about having this feeling. In fact, Ramana Maharshi's whole awakening, are you familiar with Ramana Maharshi's story? Not much, but I know that he's a good teacher from the little bit that I've read. Right. Yeah. Well, here's the story of his awakening. He was a schoolboy, a teenager in high school, I guess the equivalent of high school in India. He wasn't very interested in spiritual things. But he came home one day and he suddenly got this feeling he was going to die. And he was just overwhelmed with the terror of death. Now, this is the key thing. This is why his path was so short. Because what he did was quite phenomenal, especially for a 17-year-old boy. Maybe he was 15. I'm bad on details like this, but somewhere in that area. Instead of running to his family and, and uh, saying something's wrong or calling his friends or going out and playing soccer or turning on the radio or whatever, the things that we would normally do, and in our culture it, you can include taking Valium and you know whatnot, he decided, well, I'm going to see what this is all about, this death. So he lay down on the floor and he, in his mind's eye, saw his own death. And this is his words. He said, Fear drove my mind inward. And he saw in his mind's eye, his body went uh, rigid with rigor mortis. They came, they carried him away to the funeral pyres. They burned it to ashes. There was nothing left. And yet, there was what he called at that time just the spirit. So this is what he was. Everything else was gone. Just the way you're terrified, you're going to lose everything. Everything else is gone, but there's the spirit. So that is what he was. Now, the whole thing was fear was his teacher, the fear of death. The same fear that, that you're experiencing, the same resistance, and the same reason. You're going to lose everything. And, but isn't this the truth about life? All the stuff that you worked for and built up and all that, you're going to lose it all when you die anyway, aren't you? Including your body. You haven't even thought of that one. It's all going to be taken away from you. So the Sufis have a wonderful saying, die before you die. Why wait? And, and with all this worry and tension, you know, go ahead, right now, just, just drop dead. Be free. Be done with it. I know, it's easier. <laughs> so, yes, this is the problem, because we don't have totally free choice in all this, otherwise it'd be easy. I'd just say, okay, go out and drop dead, and then I can go back to the mountains and get a job in the hardware store and live out my life in bliss. It doesn't work that way. But let me just say that it's actually a good thing from, from a teacher's point of view. It's actually a good thing. So, yes, in the back. Did uh, oh. you ever have an inkling when you began on the path of being a teacher that you would meet with any success? No, I never worried about it. It wasn't a choice to be a teacher, so I can't take any credit. And I, but also, for all of those who I failed, I can't... <laughs> take the blame either, so. <laughs> I failed more people than have succeeded, I think, so it's a good thing. <laughs> you were last I was just curious if uh, Dr. Wolf had any other students awakened. Not that I know of, actually. I didn't meet all his students. At the end, there were, there were a few of the older students 
you know, when they were in their 70s and 80s, still sort of hanging around and coming to see them. Uh, those, not as far as I could tell or as far as anybody was talking about it. So, but I just don't know from earlier years. Yes? So that would, I guess, bring up in my mind, why should we be trying so hard? Or why is there the motivation for teaching? Or Because it almost seems like it either happens or it doesn't. It is an act of grace or, or almost... It's just a random thing, and you're either free, frequency that it's happening or it's not happening based on your consciousness, your development. Um, so it's well, I can just answer that with my experience. I started on a spiritual path thinking I had a choice whether to start on a spiritual path or not. And I knew clearly what was motivating me. I was miserably unhappy, and I was actually at a point in my life where I was quite successful materially, and I was sort of, you know, arriving at the American dream, and it wasn't doing it. It was supposed to make me happy, but it wasn't. And if this isn't going to make me happy, what is going to make me happy? And I was pretty desperate, and I was looking around, and here I stumbled on these crazy mystics, and they all seemed to be saying the same thing, and they had this radical claim that you actually could be happy, but you had to give it all up to get there. And, uh, you know, I went back and forth with this for a while, but uh, eventually... I realized I didn't really have a choice anymore. And I tried at one point to stop the path. A couple times I tried. One time I was living in this little uh, cabin in Topanga Canyon. This wasn't uh, Dr. Wolf's. Topanga Canyon is a little canyon outside of L.A. I was still working in the film business, but I had sort of retreated from the social life of the film business. And I was living up there meditating and studying and stuff like that. And I was up there and I was just getting sick of this, you know, all this paradox, and these people don't make any sense, and it's ridiculous, and da-da-da, and I decided there was a, uh, like a, you know, a bar, more than just a bar, but a, a dance, what do you call that? A roadhouse. Roadhouse kind of place, yes, down <laughs> the bottom of the canyon. So I jumped in my car, and I drove down there, and I went in, and started drinking beer, and flirting with the girls, and this and that, you know, and it just wasn't doing it. It wasn't fun anymore. I uh, got my car, drove back up to him, pick up Meister Eckhart. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't know how to answer your question. You know, this whole business of choice and, and no choice, from the point of view of the thinking mind, it ends in a paradox. The best way I can describe it is we all are convinced that we have individual self-will. That's different from free will, but we associate it with free will, but an individual self-will, and we don't. There's only one will in the universe. And if you want to put it in anthropomorphic terms, it's God's will. And that will is totally free, however. That's not predetermined will. That will is free like an artist. It's free like a jazz musician in the midst of an improvised solo. In fact, so free, it doesn't know what it's going to play next. And yet... Look what comes out, the whole cosmos. So, you know, those kinds of questions, I don't know, they, they never bothered me that much intellectually because they got solved practically. Like I said, I just at some point didn't have any choice but to continue on this path. There was nothing else to do. But then is your passion now just a continuation of, I really can't help it. I'm here. This is just happening. Oh, yes. It's really uh, to create change. Except you have to subtract out the I. Mm -hmm. It's not that I really can't help it. That's our way of talking, and I don't want to adopt some sort of artificial mode of talking to try to avoid these dualities. 
But in truth of the matter, it's not like I don't have any choice. There's just no I here. I mean, what you see is what you get. It's happening, right? I mean, it's unfolding. There's no one standing behind it anywhere, by the way, not just up here. That's our delusion that there's something behind all this. But this is it, you know? This is the Leela. Is this similar to what Rajiv would say when he's talking about saying everything's automatic? There's no, there's no real, no one does. You know, it's all, it's all mechanical. You know, at least until a certain level. Well, I, I'm not that familiar with Gurdjieff's teachings, oh. frankly, so I can't comment on that. There is conditioning, and one of the things we could say about a spiritual path is that 99 percent of it is breaking through conditioning, and that has a kind of mechanical quality about it. And it's something you learn through, first of all, becoming mindful. You learn to see in your own life. You learn to see how your responses are mechanical. They're driven by a very simple thing. Am I going to get what I want and avoid what I don't want? You know, everything you do is driven by this little mechanism. I often describe it as like, we're like rats in a maze. And at every juncture, there are two doors. One says, you'll like this. The other says, you won't like this. Well, the rat always goes to the door and says, oh, you'll like this. And so you can totally predict how the rat's going to go in the maze. The rat thinks it's always making free choices, you know, but it's not. It's totally enslaved. Often mystics talk about being in bondage or being enslaved, and that's what that means. So I don't know if that's Gurdjieff's meaning or not, but yeah. Uh, in my reading of uh, mystics, uh, like Jesus, for example, it seems to appear, could be my imagination, that... Like, just being in his presence had some uh, enlightening effect on people. So I've always had this impression that from an enlightened person, just being in their presence would have some enlightening effect. Whether it's because they're experiencing the mind in a certain way that they then somehow open up that possibility for the student or what. But, I mean, do you feel like that, like you're emanating grace or that... Yes, I do what you have to say. Uh, first of all, Jesus, uh, yes, I think people were empowered being in his presence. And he also had the opposite effect. He made people hate him to the point where they killed him. So, you know, we think, oh, we would recognize Jesus if he came back again or whatever. Uh, well, according to the experience of the first round, most people didn't recognize him. They just wanted to kill him. So, you know, I'm not so sure that I necessarily want to be like Jesus in that sense. You know, radiating this light that makes them want to get here. Uh, I think there's a, an element of also culture overlaid on this. For instance, in India, being in the presence of the guru, you know, is very important and getting the guru's grace and whatnot. However, Ramana Maharshi talks about this, and he says people came to him, and they would get angry because he wouldn't, they felt, wasn't giving them his grace. They'd come to his ashram, they'd hang out for a year or more, and they're not getting enlightened. And he described it this way, said, the God is an ocean of grace, and there's no particular time for giving grace. It's always available. And people get the grace they come uh, prepared for. So if you come with a little cup, that's how much grace you get. If you come with a big bucket, that's what you get. So what he's saying is the guru's not going around granting grace to people. Grace is always available, and not just in the guru's presence. The grace is available in the presence of a tree, in the presence of the shit in the courtyard. I mean, it's all grace, you know? So it's how open we are to it. Uh, other cultures, however, play this down. Uh, an enlightened Sufi is supposed to be 
uh, more ordinary than ordinary. And this is why these stories, I don't know how true they are, but they circulate about people going to Turkey and going into a rug shop. You know, they're looking for a Sufi master and the rug seller, he's just a simple rug seller, you know, and he says a few words and they don't think much of it, but then later they think about it and they start coming back to the rug shop. Pretty soon they realize they've been in the presence of a great master, but nobody knows it. So part of this is a cultural thing. So the bottom line is I don't go around emanating grace. Uh, again, I say, you get what you see. This is it. You see, there are no tricks. I mean, this is what people don't understand. That is my secret. There is no trick. It's a judo kind of thing. It's when you see that there is no trick. All along you're looking for the trick, but there is no trick. Except to stop looking for the trick. In all of life, not just the spiritual trick, to stop looking for the trick everywhere, you know. Yeah. But on the other hand, couldn't you say that, you know, since we all seem to have manifested you somehow, that, you know, we're here to hear what you say. We're here to receive what you say. You could say that, yes. <laughs> why did you manifest me? I'm supposed to be in bed. I got a fever here. I don't know why you manifested me. <laughs> These are mythic ways of putting things, and they have a purpose on the path. But like all teachings or all stories, they address some specific problem. So if your problem is, you're trying so hard and you think you can do this all on your own, then a teaching about surrender to the guru can be very helpful. You see what I mean? On the other hand, if you're just hanging out at the ashram, smoking dope and waiting to get enlightened, then the Buddhist teaching can be very helpful. Each must struggle for themselves. The Buddhas only point the way. Both are true. That's the point. Teachings are specific to situations and circumstances and whatnot. So... Some teachings are good for lots of people, but not for everybody in every situation, every circumstance. Yes, Ellie. A couple of years I've been doing uh, affirmations, and which I've developed over the years for long, many times, and I wondered, I've tried to modify some of my affirmations so I'm not emphasizing the story of I quite as much, you know, I'm mm. not saying I am light, I am love, but uh, some of them still seem to be valuable to me, like um, it may be something related to, to the breathing or kind of like treating them as a mantra. And I just wondered in general what you thought about affirmations, especially when um, you, know, you say, I am this or I am that. Right. Well, again, teachings can be helpful at different stages on a path. And in my opinion, it would be something to be helpful in more beginning stages of a path. At some point, I think you want to start doing what you're doing. Start looking at them and start saying, okay, you know, how much of this is actually reinforcing the story of I, and how much of this is helpful to the good of the whole? I love this prayer that's attributed to St. Francis that I've heard lately, actually was written by somebody much later, but it goes something like, uh, Lord, guide me not so much to be loved as to love. Not so much to be understood as to understand. Now, that's asking for help, that's asking for guidance, but it's turning it back around. It's not asking for stuff for me, me, me. And then make me an instrument of thy peace. So it's really a prayer of surrender. And it's a prayer of taking the emphasis off ego and off self and opening up to grace, to love, to compassion, to all those kinds of things. You know, everybody who starts on a spiritual path starts egocentric. I mean, if you're not, you wouldn't be on a spiritual path, by definition, you see. So you're starting a spiritual path to get something for yourself, everybody. 
put an end to your suffering, to get enlightenment, to get empowered, so you can become a, a teacher. Haha, <laughs> big joke that is. You think that's a great thing. But anyway, there are a lot of people who <laughs> aspire to that for some reason. But this is what the path teaches you. The path itself undoes all that. If you continue to walk it and you continue to open to it. Some people, the path becomes their new identity. So now I'm a Buddhist monk, I shave my head, I put on the robes, I have my begging bowl, I go out, I get a little advanced meditation, I become a teacher, and you know, it becomes a new identity. So I don't know if that's answering your question, I think you're on the right track. I would encourage you to look at these affirmations more and see what can I affirm that isn't a protective of me, that isn't empowering of me, but is the surrender of me. It's the letting go of all that that allows something to flow through. Uh, Zorba, then I think. Okay. The question is about, is about the process of choices being made in this um, after enlightenment, choices being made, uh, you see things unfolding, but I'm asking about how we make choices. And I think that, um, I, I think I've heard this before that you see choices being made within sort of the mind making choices. And I wonder if you're ever very surprised by the choices that mind makes, that your own mind makes, not that you hear someone else yeah. make it for themselves. Yeah. Well, I live with this mind for quite a while now, so it takes a lot to really surprise me. But yes, the answer is yes, occasionally I am. One example of is the fact that we're standing in this house, or sitting in this house, I'm standing, and you guys are lucky sitting, you see this. The other thing about being a teacher, you've got to stand up here all the time. But uh, Jennifer and I had, let's see, my mother had just died, I think, yes. And so I had a little extra money, and we were going to go to Europe. We were planning a trip to go to Europe. And then I had a dream. And in the dream, I don't even remember the exact content of the dream, but I woke up and the dream was buy a house. We were, we had this little house before and we were, everybody met in the living room and we were running out of space. So I said, Jennifer, I said, how would you like to take that money instead of going to Europe and we'll buy a house? And she said, why are you asking me? It's already decided, isn't it? You know? <laughs> so... Anyway, and then we started looking, and she said, well, I don't mind starting to look for a house if that's what's going to happen, but I'm not ready to buy a house right now. We'll start looking, and we'll take our time. I said, fine, you know. So we went out, we drove out, we came down this street, we saw this house, and we said, what about this house? <laughs> <laughs> the park has lots of, you know, good parking and this and that and so forth. And we drove on, we saw another house, and... Uh, I think maybe I took her home and came over to this house, and this was a garage at the time, and the price was right, and you know I said, "Come on, we got to go back and look at that house, right?" And then everything was right except how we didn't do a meeting room. There's this little garage with a breezeway between the garage and the house, and this and that, and so uh, oh, then we got a uh, architect and paid him to come over and just to look the space over and give us an idea of what could be done with it. And that night I had a dream, and again, I don't remember the rest of the dream, but that phrase from the Salinger book, the title of Salinger books, Raise High the Roof Beam Carpenter. Mm -hmm. I woke up with that in my mind, just Raise High the Roof Beam Carpenter. So then we come over here, and we meet the architect, and he's looking around, and uh, we're saying, I don't know, you know, what can we do with this? And he says, oh, you, you could do some nice stuff, see? Because uh, you could knock out this wall and you stand and put a bay window there and raise the roof beam. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, <laughs> I don't know. This all surprised me. And uh, eventually I got to go to Spain to go to the Parliament of World Religions. A few years later, you know, it was fine. So I'm just trying to give you an example of how that works. I mean, there was obviously a problem. The room was getting uh, too small, the living room for the people who were coming and all that. But it wasn't like sitting around thinking, what can we do about it? What can we do So it's like we divide these processes up in our minds between what's going on outside and what's going on inside. And the truth of the matter is they're indivisible. It's not like I would have just bought the house if there wasn't some reason to buy a house. We didn't, for ourselves, need a house, you know. But that line that we draw for our convenience between what I'm deciding and what circumstances are demanding is a line that is imaginary. That's not the way it truly works. We are part of this dance, and that even dance is too isolating. We have partners in dances, but we are part of this flow, really. It just flows. It just keeps flowing, 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 you know. And whenever we resist it, we have suffering. And that's the definition of suffering. It's the resistance. And whenever we flow with, and flow with does not mean becoming a doormat. I mean, the flow is on both sides of this imaginary line, you know? So if war comes, you don't just say, well, it's the flow of things, because what's the response to that? Well, write letters to your congressman, um, demonstrate or whatever, you know? If you're against it, maybe it's a just war. You know, when uh, all those people being slaughtered in Bosnia, I was for our U.S. intervention. I wrote letters to the congressman then. I said, Clinton, get off your behind. Never again. Remember, never again. You know, we don't sit by and watch a whole village taken out machine gun. Never again. And not because I was right. It's just this was the response that arose in me. Based on a whole history that I grew up in this century, that I remember never again what that was supposed to mean. People have a very short memory, and yeah. unfortunately, we have to learn these lessons over and stuff, but... So we do the best we can, but we don't obsess about what am I going to do. Life will show you what to do. It'll show you from the outside what comes to you, and it'll show you what arises from inside. And you really don't have to worry about it. It's going to show you. It won't let you sit still. As I often say, this is compulsory dancing. You can't sit by the sun. Maybe when you die, if you believe in reincarnation, you get to sit one out or something before you come back. But while you're here, you know, we're on the dance floor. There are no sidelines. So if you resist the dance, it's going to be a nightmare. If you throw yourself into the dance, it'll be wonderful. It'll be a joy, even when things are, quote, difficult and tough. I don't know if that's helpful or not, Barry. Yes. Um, I'm curious if being in this place of enlightenment is a place where you just accept whatever is because it's the greater will. And if, you're, if that is where that place is, if, if it allows you to be in the present enough that you can just rest in the knowledge that the will will continue to unfold as it is and all these scenarios of doom and gloom that a lot of us in Eugene are walking around with for the coming age even 5, 10, 15 years from now, between peak oil and scarcity and global warming and martial law and the end of democracy as we supposedly once knew it. Like, if those are things that should just be put to rest because will will just continue to unfold as, um, as will. Look, we have to use words, but we're getting to a place where it's becoming impossible to talk about enlightenment because it isn't a place. 
where you are coming from. In fact, it'd be better to define it as coming from no place. And in the Tibetan tradition, it's defined as abiding and non-abiding. There's no place to abide. There's no place to arrive at. So a remedy to that is the whole Taoist image. I talked about before, everything is flowing. You're not resting anywhere. There is no rest, ever. It's just all flowing, 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 flowing. So then the question is, well, should we just let go? I mean, it's just going to be what it is. And it is true it's going to be what it is, but you're part of what it's going to be, too. You can't stand back and say, well, I'll just let it be what it is. So what are you called to do? You know, Gandhi, for instance, was someone who was quite mystical in his teachings, and he applied them to his very activist life. He read the Bhagavad Gita every day of his life, and he just kept going around and reading it. He finished, he'd go back to the beginning and read it and read it. And he applied the principles like not to be attached to the fruit of your action, but you have the right to act. So it's more like how you do what you're going to do than what you do that's important. But maybe you're not suited to be an activist. I have no idea. Only you know that. If you're not suited to be an activist, by the way, you shouldn't be an activist. I worked at the Bodhi Tree bookstore, and there were some people who worked there who were not suited to be clerks dealing with the public. No, they weren't. <laughs> they put them upstairs, and they were accountants and all that, and they were wonderful. It's just true. We have certain temperaments and talents and whatnot that not everybody can just do everybody's job, and not everybody should try to do everybody's job. So the question is, what are you called to do, and then how are you going to do it as compassionately, as selflessly, as lovingly as you can, and taking into consideration the good of the whole, rather than narrow vision. And then, also, I think a very important quality we need here is a little bit of realism, this whole idea of peak oil and stuff like that. If we continue burning fossil fuels, we will make conditions very inhospitable for life on this planet. So, if we're going to stop burning fossil fuels, Knowing the way people are, one way to do that is have the price of the fuels go way up. It's a good thing from that point of view. $5 a barrel is nothing. We should be wanting $10 a barrel, $15, $20 a barrel. But it's going to be painful. I'm sorry, you're right, $20 a barrel. Oh my God, we're dead. <laughs> Thank you. A gallon, yes. Uh, but that's going to be painful. That's going to be painful for poor people more than rich people, in fact. We don't live in a fairyland. You know, we, we want to tip to life and not hurt or offend anybody. But you can't not offend somebody in life. Just impossible. So what do we do? We do a little thing, whatever it is. We just do it as skillfully as we can. And then as the I Ching says, no blame. There's a wonderful uh, story I tell quite often from one of the Carlos Castaneda books, which I'm not a big fan of, but this is a great story, and I take a great story from anywhere. And Carlos is walking along with Don Juan, and they're on a mountain trail, and, oh, he notices his shoe's untied, so he stops to tie his shoe. And this huge boulder comes crashing down right in front of them where he would have stepped if he hadn't stopped to tie his shoe. He's amazed. We talk about grace and divine intervention, all that stuff, you know. And he turns to Don Juan and said, did you see that? He said, if I hadn't stopped to tie my shoe, I would be smashed to bits. And Don Juan says, yes, that's true. He says, but the next time you walk this path, you might stop to tie your shoe, and the boulder will come right where you are, <laughs> smash you to bits. You don't know. And Carlos says, 
That's true. You don't know. You never know, do you? So what can you do? And Don Juan says, tie your shoelace as meticulously as possible. <laughs> this is life. This is truth. This is reality, right? <laughs> I, I wasn't trying to say that we should do nothing because the universal will will just unfold and therefore there's nothing to be done. I was more wondering in terms of an ability to sort of live with that fear or that um, just to be able to, whether there's a sense of you can just trust that what does unfold should unfold and... I'll go farther. You can be happy with the way things are, even with the gloom and doom. I'm going to recommend two, uh, one reading and one viewing, if you want to borrow from the library here. Zorba the Greek. Do you ever hear of Zorba the Greek? <laughs> we have the movie in the library. I recommend the movie rather than the book. The book's more complicated, brings in Buddhism and all that, but the, <clears throat> the movie's a little more entertaining. And that's a little fashioned, so, you know, it's black and white, and, <clears throat> and I must warn you, Zorba, on the face of it, he's a male chauvinist pig, but if you watch the movie carefully, who's there for all the women in the movie when uh, they need somebody? Zorba, not anybody else. So watch what he does rather than what it comes out of his mouth. You know, all that stuff. Oh, women are so weak and they give you all they got. Watch the movie. It's a movie about someone who's not an enlightened being, but someone who knows how to practice detachment and what that means. And it doesn't mean, as the word indicates usually in English, being stoical and removed from things and not emotional. It means living life with all the passion you can muster and enjoying every minute of it, even the gloom, the dark, even the evil, the killings, the, you know. It's like, like that. And the other is a book we have called An Interrupted Life, I believe it is, by Eddie Hillison. And it's a horrible title. It should be called Answer to Auschwitz because it's about a mystic who died in Auschwitz, and it's her diary of, you know, getting there, and how the Nazis were her teacher. They provided her spiritual path. One reason she moved along so fast, because they kept throwing this stuff in her face, you know, that nobody wants to look at, nobody wants to face, nobody wants to deal with, and how she turned it around, you know, all of it. So, again, this was a horrible period of human history, with a lot of gloom and doom staring everybody in the face. So, you know, mysticism isn't just a Sunday religion. If it is, it's not worth anything. These practices and what we try to cultivate, they'll be there when we need them the most, and that is in the moments of despair and whatnot. Okay, one last one, then we're going to... It's a good one, though. Okay, it's a good one? Yes, go ahead. Bring it on. <laughs> so a couple of things that have come up in the course of the talk that reminded me of a conversation I had with someone less than a week ago. Let me back up a step. I'll come to that. I, 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 t I tend Good to... Good and short and sweet, right? Yeah. Okay. okay. So the way I think of enlightenment... Right. ...is that... You're wrong. I can answer that. <laughs> Whatever you think of enlightenment, you're wrong. Okay. It, it cannot be thought of. I have lunch. <laughs> no, go, go ahead. Go ahead, because it's good to get some things out of the way, okay, some okay. specifics. But I mean that. Whatever you think of enlightenment, you are wrong. And, and, I'm, and I'm glad to know how I'm wrong. So. Good. Uh, the way I think of it is that it's a process of becoming less and less attached to the point where there's no good or bad, it's just whatever is, is, and I don't have preferences. It's almost like the opposite which you said about the rat, we'll always choose the pleasure door and not... But enlightenment, as, as I think of it, is like, okay, 
you, you get beyond this, this, this mechanism gets disabled. And now it's like you're okay with whatever it is. It's not, no longer driven by this basic instinct of like moving towards pleasure and away from pain. That's how I think of it. And if I take that to its ultimate, that to me would mean no longer fearing death. I don't even prefer life. I'm, whatever happens is fine. So my question is, does an enlightened person, you or anyone, does an enlightened person, if they're on the 25th story of a tall building and they're standing on the wall that's like this big, and they're looking down, do they go, whoa? Do they feel that? Do they feel like, whoa? You know? I can go off. Uh, I, I can answer that very specifically for myself. Have you ever been to the Steen Mountains? No, it's on the list, though. Great, fabulous. Go to that. What's the name of that gorge? Kaiser Gorge. Kiger. 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 Kaiser Gorge. Kiger. And there's a one place in Kiger Gorge you can, you know, go up and you can go like that. Major vertigo. Major vertigo. Jennifer Greta. But you see, fear is not fear. I, I don't know how else to put this. Our bodies react to various things. They're built that way, they're conditioned that way, and it's all good. Fear is your ally. Fear is what gives you the strength and danger to do things you couldn't ordinarily do. Fear is what gives you the clarity. It wipes your mind free of all distraction so we can deal with this. Fear is what drove Ramana Maharshi's mind inward. It cleared out all the clutter, the story of I, all the piddly stuff, the da-da-da-da-da, just wiped it all out, made it absolutely clear. Fear is a wonderful thing. I wouldn't want to be without fear for an instant. In fact, I'm going to tell you a quick story. When I was truly without fear, yes. In Vietnam, in, uh, uh, where I was, we would get mortared like every other night. What? Mortared, mortar attacks. We all lived in these hooches, these grass-thatched hooches, and in this base camp, and they lob in mortars. And you'd hear the mortar coming, the whistle. You must have seen the movies. And somebody, and me, because I, I was a very sound sleeper, but I had this antenna for them. Whoever hears the first leaps up and says, incoming, and everybody grabs their rifles and their steel pots, and we run and dive in the bunkers and hide out while the mortars are going off all around us, right? And so I learned to sleep this way. And I could smoke dope, and they'd be fine. I, Incoming, clear, right? You know, this, this fear just wipes everything out, run the you know. Then I got a hold of some uh, opium. And this was early in Vietnam, before it was widespread, and everybody was, you know. So this was kind of special. So, oh, we all smoke some opium. So I go back and I'm lying in my cot in the hooch, and shh. I'm thinking, oh, isn't that interesting? <laughs> Somebody else, incoming! Everybody around me is jumping up, grabbing their steel pots. Yeah, it's kind of nice here, you know? I don't, I don't have any fear. <laughs> then a voice from somewhere said, You dummy, you can't be smoking this dope here. You need that fear. You need that. And I got myself up and got in, and I, and I never did in Vietnam again. It was too dangerous. Because it wiped out the fear. It really did. They wiped out the fear. So, you see, we normally suffer from fear. Here's what enlightenment does. It doesn't wipe out fear, but it makes you appreciate fear. And i got to tell you one other thing that most people have heard before. But, see, we all want to experience fear. We love fear. 
We just don't want it to be about us. No, serious. I was in the film business, and a staple of the film business is the horror movie. And the horror movie is designed to bring out fear in the audience. If it can't do that, it's a flop. It's a success if it can do that. Everything from the cheapy, you know, Friday Night Chainsaw Massacre to The Shining and the big ones, you know, they're all about terrifying the audience. They're all about you go with your girlfriend, you know, and you sit there and she screams and she grabs on to you and you're pretending to be brave and, you know, not jump around and, you know, it's all the whole experience. People pay their hard-earned money, you know. Workers who work on an assembly line, you know, 12 hours a day. <laughs> what do they want to do Friday night? Is go experience fear. <laughs> and the whole point is you go to the movie, you get to experience it ain't happening to you. Well, enlightenment shows you it ain't happening to you anywhere. Mm. See? Mm. So that's the difference. It's not about whether you would feel fear or not. It's not about whether you feel sorrow or not. A good example is I was just giving a retreat down in California and ran into a Vietnam vet there. I mentioned something about it. He said, yeah, I was Vietnam vet too. He started to choke up and I started to choke up and we gave each other a big embrace and, you know, and this and that. And everybody could start choking up. Now, for me, before my awakening, Vietnam was a source of major suffering. Now there's a sweetness. I don't know how else to describe it. It's not a source of suffering. It's sweet. I wouldn't miss that kind of connection, that deep connection with another human being for anything. And it comes through sorrow. It comes through, you know, sadness. So it's not about getting rid of anything. But it's about, if you want to say, a shift. So everything before that you thought was awful and all the things you thought were good, it's not like they reverse. It's like that filter is lifted and they are what they are. The Buddhists call it the suchness of things. And it doesn't mean mush, like it's all oatmeal. It means everything has its quality, every phenomenon, every emotion, every mood. It's all divine. It's all part of the lila of God. And it's always the case. It's not like some special about being awake. It's always the case. It's just, look, take off the glasses. So, on that note, I think we'll bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And you're welcome to stay. Have some uh, goodies here. Check out the library. You get the last chance here for the, for the summer. Until we see you next year. Ah, I get a break. <laughs> Peace to you all. <laughs>